Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 12. Psalm 12, and we'll read verses 6 to 7 this morning, which is a repeat of what we had two weeks ago. As we continue our look at, look at the God who preserves. God who preserves. Verses 6 and 7. Psalm 12, verses 6 and 7. This is the second part of this particular series. I hope you'll be blessed this morning with what you hear. Let's read together. Okay, Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. A silver tried in a furnace of earth purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let's, let's commit this time to him. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the, the blessings of your word this morning. We just thank you that we have it in our hands, we can trust every word within it, and that you have preserved it for us, that we might be blessed through it. And this morning I pray that you would bless us again, that you would grant us the grace that we need to understand it, and the courage and conviction in our lives to live it. We pray that this word would shine forth in everything we do and say. We pray that we would be committed to it, that we would stand firmly upon its precepts, upon its laws, Father, upon the truth that it stands for. Heavenly Father, bless us with the presence of your Spirit this morning and help us to be the people that you need us to be. Not that you need us to be, actually, Lord. You don't need anyone that you want us to be. I pray that you're blessing, you'll bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, teaching, uh, as most of you know, uh, history, uh, church history at the moment at the Bible College. Um, and by the way, where's Marie? Marie, are you uh, Marie? You did well on your test. <laughs> Actually, Marie, um, am I allowed to tell you tell them your score? Marie, you got a perfect score. Praise God. Well done. Um, that's a blessing. I thought you'd want us to be okay to share that. Wouldn't you? I know you don't want to show off, and I know that you're going to get you're going to get plenty more blessings from God. Don't worry, yeah, it's all good. Um, in, uh, in church history, it's amazing. Uh, the, the more you dig into it, the more you're, you're able to spot and find out uh, the things that, have, that we do today and the things that we just take for granted today, where they actually began and, uh, and, and, and why we, we do certain things that we do. Um, and persecution is, uh, is pretty rife in the church in the early 300 years. So you can imagine that the church starts... And for 300 years, that's a long period of time. I mean, Australia's only about a couple of, been only here for a couple of hundred years. But for 300 years, the church experienced periods of severe persecution, like serious stuff that we've never experienced in our, in our lifetimes uh, ever before. Um, but the early church experienced a great deal of persecution in the, during that time, and, but it went up and down. So there were times of relative rest and there were times of, of, uh, of really intense persecution. But it began in Jerusalem. So as soon as the church essentially started and began to put up its hand and stick its head up out of the ground, um, they began to, people started to want to hit them on the head like those, those games you see at the carnivals. Um, and it started with the Sanhedrin. So the Jewish leadership in, uh, in Jerusalem did not want a bar of what the Christians had to say. And when they started meeting in the temple every day you know, uh, and, and spreading these sorts of things, that became a bit of a concern for them. So they, they tried to put a, an immediate stop to it. And, um, and the, uh, the Christians, the early Christians, experienced a huge amount of, of persecution, um, which was led in part by the Apostle Paul 
who uh, had people dragged out of their homes and, and brought to the council and, uh, and uh, nasty things were, were done to them. The Christians were forced to flee from Jerusalem and they, they spread out from Jerusalem into Judea and then into Samaria and then into, into parts of the world that, that they considered the outer or the uttermost parts of the world at that stage, the civilised world at that stage. But didn't Jesus promise that that's where the gospel would go, that it would start at Jerusalem, he goes beginning at Jerusalem and into Judea and into Samaria and into the outermost parts of the world. You'll spread my message. That's the message of the Great Commission, he tells them. Maybe they weren't quite aware that a lot of that growth would come from being chased into those areas and from fleeing into those areas, but it was accelerated. The gospel spread was actually accelerated by the persecution that they were, um, that they were experiencing. And you would think it the opposite way, wouldn't you? Normally when persecution happens, people go into hiding and they, don't, uh, um, they, 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 they go underground. But Christianity actually spread further and further and further because of the persecution. But after fleeing Jerusalem, they saw even more of an increase in persecution because they weren't just dealing with the, the Jewish leadership. They now had to contend with paganism, which was the established religion. Well, paganism is really believing whatever you want, essentially, uh, and a, a variety of gods and do whatever you want and how you want it. There's pretty much no rules uh, attached to these things. Um, but paganism was the, uh, the established uh, system in the Roman Empire during those days. Uh, and then whenever the, the gospel went somewhere, it immediately experienced confrontation. Wherever the gospel arrived, it immediately challenged the belief in multiple gods. Immediately. Here come the Christians. Everyone's believing in Diana and Apollo and, uh, and all these different gods and Zeus and, uh, and Jupiter. And everyone's got their, their God and they're happy with their God. And maybe they've got a few of them lined up as well to, you know, you need a God for each thing. You know, God for the best, you know, the best clothes, the God for, the, he's going to give me some good food, the God is going to give me fertility, the God is going to give me a good business, the God is going to, you know, help my, my horse run faster, or whatever it is. So every God had a specific speciality, okay? Um, so you might have had a few lined up over there, but here comes Christianity, and your next door neighbour moves in, and he says, uh, oh yeah, how are you? You get to meet each other. What God do you follow? Oh, I follow the, the God of the Bible, the, the Creator. And you go, what do you mean the Creator? And uh, the Christian then says, the Creator, Jehovah, there's only one. Hang on a sec, what are you talking about? I believe in Apollo. He's not really a god. Apollo's not a god, he's actually a, a fake. <laughs> he doesn't exist. Or he's a fake, or even worse, he's actually a demon. He's actually a devil. Which means he's deceptive. He's making himself look like something, but he's not. Okay. That's going to cause some friction, isn't it? The more that spreads around, the more um, they experienced persecution. So wherever the gospel arrives, it doesn't just challenge the, the, the belief in multiple gods. It challenges the immoral practices of everyone around them as well. Here come the Christians. They're not getting drunk with us at Bacchus's, um, uh commemorations. They're not committing uh, sexual fornication in the temple where they, where they meet. They must be doing something. I mean, we go every time we go to the temple, we commit fornication. But they don't do that stuff. They don't get drunk. They don't swear. They don't do all these things that we do. What is wrong with these people? And they reckon they're happy too. They can't possibly be happy. There's something fishy going on with these people. 
So Christianity confronts always the immoral practices of a society because it stands apart from, it looks different to. And then it, it, establish, it, it also contradicts the established traditions declaring and the truths of, of that culture declaring that there is only one truth. And that truth comes directly from this one God. And this one God has made one way. And he has one word that he's delivered to us. And every other type of word or religious writing is not reliable or trustworthy. It may contain bits and pieces of truth, but it is not trustworthy as this gospel is. All those idols that people have and that they were building and, and, and relying on and praying to and rubbing for good luck. The Christians were saying, we don't need any of that. It's all lies. It's all just made up stories and fables. So this God who, uh, who stands in contradiction to all these other gods says that he is the only pure one. He is the only real one. He is the author of, of all. He is the beginner of all. And he is the only true and dependable truth. He is the only one through whom salvation is available. And his son is the doorway through whom that salvation can be received. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. Turn to Acts chapter sorry, 19 with me, verse 23. And we'll read to verse 28. As we look at just a particular instance of what happened to Paul when he was delivering a message and how those people who were involved in the businesses of that idol worship became affected by that and how they got pretty upset by it. Acts chapter 19, verse 23. And says there, at the same time, there arose no small stir about the way. You know what the way is? Christianity, the gospel. Okay? There was no small stir, which means it was a big stir. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, which made silver shrines for Diana, a, a local god, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together, with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, do you know that by this craft we have our wealth? That was their business. Moreover, you see in here that none alone at Ephesus, that not alone at Ephesus, but almost uh, throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this, our craft, is in danger to be set at naught, at zero that means, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshippeth. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay. They got upset. Their livelihoods were... At risk because they were making money from making little idols that people could carry around with them and they could depend on and pray to. And here comes Paul, he's converting thousands of people, and they're no longer going to worship at the temple of Diana. They're telling everyone else that they don't need to worship Diana anymore. That Diana is actually a devil rather than a, <laughs> rather than a, a god that you can depend on and pray to. So as Christianity spread, this whole one God, one faith, one salvation, one saviour 
business was irking people up the wrong way. So what do you do when you're the established religion, when you have all the, the numbers on your side? Well, you try and squash that thing because it's a threat to your livelihood and a threat to your, uh, your way of life. So as Christianity began to grow and grow and, and began to threaten the social order of the Roman Empire and the accepted beliefs of the pagans, they began persecuting Christians more and more and more. So for the first 300 years, Christians were persecuted to varying degrees, but it was dependent on whichever emperor was in, in power at that time. For around 40 years, so let's start starting from about 211 to about 250, there was, about, there was peace. They let, Christians weren't in the, the firing lines. They had too many other things to deal with. They had wars to take care of and, and the Roman armies had, had threats from different areas. So they left the Christians alone. So for 40 years, the Christians actually had relative peace. And they grew substantially during this time. They were able to go out and share the gospel and do certain things that they weren't able to do before. But at the same time, even though they had, they had this freedom, they became slacker and more worldly. They began to accumulate wealth to themselves. This is the period, this particular time between 211 and 250, they started to build churches. They couldn't build a church before. You don't want to stick your, you don't want to be stick out like a sore thumb, do you? When people are uh, throwing you in jail and, and killing you, you're not going to build a church. But now, between 211 and 250, they start building churches because they've got the freedom to do it. No one's saying anything to them. Let's build a church here. You know, we've been meeting in our house, but you know what? I've got a much better idea. Let's build a church and we can meet a hundred of us in there. Yeah? So they start building churches during this time. They became wealthier. During this time, we start seeing for the first time clergy. That collar that I don't wear. Clergy, for the first time in 211, between 211 and 250, people start getting jobs as clergymen, priests. Now, what's strange about that is that Christianity didn't have any priests. What were priests doing floating around? Well, you know what? As they were converting people from other religions, they had priests. The Jews had priests. All the religions around them had priests. Someone who was special and high up, who could talk to the God on your behalf, who could do very special things for you that you couldn't necessarily do. And guess what the temptation was? If you're at a church, well, let's put you in charge of that church over there. But you don't look different than everyone else. You need to look higher up. You need to look more distinguished. Start wearing robes. You need to start distinguishing yourself. That you're the leader of this, of this thing. When we were paying you a wage, you better look different. So this is where the whole business of collars and robes and candles and churches and hats. I mean, a hat might not be a bad idea for me, but anyway. <laughs> and as they start getting wealthier and wealthier, they start getting the idea of bishops and, and, and converting, changing the name or the, the, the normal meaning of the name bishop as an overseer as to one who actually looks over a whole entire area with a number of clergy under him. But the persecution hadn't ended. You see, 
So Christianity had its 50 years of peace and they started to, to move towards a religious, looking like, they began to look like more and more, the religious, the religions around them, which had priesthoods. But the persecution didn't end. With the inauguration of Decius as emperor, the persecution started again. See, Decius loved the old Roman religion. He saw, still saw Christians as a threat. And in 250, he published an edict to all the governors and of all provinces that all people should sacrifice before the God of Caesar and say, Caesar is Lord, rather than Christ. Jesus is Lord. And any subject that didn't would be branded a traitor and punished. Prisons from the 250s onward, um, actually it only lasted about a year or so, but the prisons became filled with Christians who refused to say Caesar is Lord. In 257, Valerian came in. He banished bishops and property. He prohibited the assembling of Christians. And then he introduced the death penalty for them as well. And in 260, those persecutions ended when he died and his son got converted to Christianity. Christianity was made for the first time in the history of the, the Roman Empire an official religion, which means... It was actually accepted as a religion. Does that make sense to you? So if you go to the... I'm not sure what the Australian government recognises as a religion, but um, uh, they probably got a list of official religions that it, it, they recognise. But if, if you call yourself the, uh, the religion of, um, of the, I don't know, the funny man hats, they probably won't have you registered as a religion, which means you can't then create uh, a... Uh, uh, of charity or anything associated with that. You can't be a tax-exempt organisation that won't recognise you. So anyway, for the first time in the Roman Empire, Christianity became an official religion. So there was peace again for another 40 years' this time. And during this time, you know what the Christians did? They re- rebuilt the churches that, they had, uh, that, that had been knocked down. They wrote books. They re- rewrote Bibles that had been destroyed. And they began to use gold and silver for sacraments. Gold and silver. Gold chalices, silver chalices, gold and silver ornaments. And once again, the church became more and more worldly, copying what it was seeing in the other religions. In its desire to look like and want to be accepted, it made itself look like the other religions from the exterior. Does that make sense to you? So in that desire to want to look official, to want to look like a real religion, not something that's happening just underground, they began to look more and more like these other people. But once again, in 303, a fellow called Diocletian became the emperor of Rome. And then all of a sudden things changed again. You see, Diocletian was a nasty, uh, nasty character. He was, the, he was probably the final and the biggest push um, to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth once and for all. So he issued edicts, and what he did, he did it a bit differently. He attacked all the leaders of the church. Everyone who held any position in the church, who was a, a teacher, a, a pastor, or whatever, a priest, whatever it was, he attacked all of those guys all at once, put them all in jail, and made them to recant forcibly in public. What he wanted to do was to demoralise the priesthood, the leadership, so that people would then turn away and say, this is not real because the leaders are 
he knows that if you scatter the, if you, um, you attack the actual shepherd, the sheep will scatter. What he also tried to do during this time, and the important thing he tried to do, was to actually try and get his hands on and burn every copy of the Bible he could get his hands on. And that he did to quite, a, to, to quite an extent. And he was confident that he, with his efforts he would see the eradication of Christianity from the empire. But did he succeed? Obviously not. We're sitting here today. He didn't succeed. But what's interesting is that he was struck down with a disease. And guess who he asked to pray for him as he was dying? He apologised to the Christians and asked them if they would pray for him. Um, and after him, there may have been little bits and pieces, but after this particular time, after 300, um, you find a, a, a waning of any um, uh, attacks on Christianity from an official or Roman government perspective. Diocletian and all the ones before him that tried to destroy Christianity, the, the Jewish leadership that tried to destroy Christianity, the pagans who tried to destroy Christianity, all failed. All failed. And the reason we're here today is because of a promise that was made. And Jesus made that promise. And he says in Matthew 16, 18, he says, And I say unto thee, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Shall not prevail. The church will always, always exist if Christ's promise is to be maintained. And it will. Despite the best laid plans of kingdoms, and men and the kings of darkness itself to wipe out Christianity by inspiring those people living in darkness to carry out atrocities and persecutions, their plans failed. We're a living testimony of that fact. We're a living testimony that what God starts, he finishes. In addition to this, every attempt the devil has made to destroy the scriptures has failed. He tried, they tried to burn them uh, outlaw them, stop the, 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 uh, the copying of them, but they could not do it. And today what we're going to examine is the promise that God made to preserve his word. And we're going to look at how he gave that to us perfectly as, a, as simply the first step. Just let me recap with you. I'm just going to put some air on because I think it's getting really muggy. Is, are people feeling that? Other than that, a couple of people have already passed out over here. Let me just sort this out. Okay. So in my last sermon, I focused on uh, the, the power of God to preserve believers. Remember that? We looked at the, the, the way that God not only cleanses every believer from all of their sin, but then he seals them with the Holy Spirit and that guarantees our safe passage to get home intact and preserved. We looked at the proof that the Lord can fulfill his promise to us today as believers because he had already demonstrated this ability time and time again in history. He had preserved his people Israel over thousands of years, even though you have larger empires who attack them directly, who no longer exist. I mean, where's the Assyrian Empire now? doesn't exist. The Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, they, they've all come and they've all gone. The people in those, those countries still sort of exist, but 
those empires have come and gone. Each of these superpowers were at times uh, hostile towards Israel. They failed, though. They failed to destroy it. They failed to destroy the people, the history, the culture, and all the scriptures that God had asked Israel to write and to preserve. And God was even able to preserve the shoes and the clothes of the Israelites as they walked around a desert for 40 years. We saw that. We also saw God's preserving power and how he upholds the whole universe and how Christ's power keeps everything going. Hebrews tells us that he is, in verse uh, Hebrews 1.3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. He is upholding all things simply by speaking it. Which is where we left off last time. And the argument was simply this. If God can preserve his people over thousands of years, if he can preserve believers in, in their salvation, if he can preserve the universe and all of creation by the word of his power, then he can preserve his word. That was the argument that I started with or ended with last time. We can be confident that every time we read the word of God, we memorize it, every time we share that word, we can be confident that it's true and perfectly true. We don't have to doubt it. So let's look at what the Bible says about itself and what God has promised regarding it. Do you remember when I shared um, last time how God preserves a Christian? Remember I said that first he's got to cleanse them and then he's got to seal them like a tin can, right? With food, I gave that illustration as, a, as a, like a can of baked beans. You're all like a can of baked beans this morning, right? Some are probably better baked beans and other ones are, yeah. But God preserves in a similar type of way. Well, he's done a similar type of thing with his word. Turn to um, uh, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, the, the words we've, um, we read already this morning. And let's break this down into two quick verses. Verse 6 and verse 7, and we'll look at these just quickly, just as a, so you understand that God used the same system with his word. Okay. Look at verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Now with us, God had to cleanse us because we were contaminated and dirty. But when it comes to his word, his words are perfectly pure words. He delivered those words purely. And the picture is, when you see silver, when you, um, when you uh, heat it up okay, and, you, and you put it on a high flame, what it does, it melts, right? And all the impurities float and they skim off the impurities and you're left with pure silver. Silver. Now, doing this seven times gives you an indication of how pure God's word actually is. So the picture is, you can't get any purer. It's perfectly pure. So when God delivered his word, it was perfectly, perfectly pure. And in the Old Testament, he chose to deliver these words in the language of his chosen people. The Jews. In the New Testament, he chose to deliver these words in Greek. The common language of the world at that time. And this shows a shift in God's plan. Actually shows the next phase of God's plan. You see, God's plan doesn't change. God already knew. But originally, he gave his, his word to his people in the Hebrew language. And then their job was to actually then go and teach the world. Okay? But when it comes to this New Testament, God then gives it directly in the language of the day. 
he gives it in Greek. And the language of the entire Roman Empire and the language that everyone could speak, even if you're Italian or, or, uh, or uh, Persian or whatever, everyone spoke Greek. And God delivered the New Testament in Greek because the goal was to get this truth to the entire world and get to the world it did very, very quickly. And now that God gave his word purely and perfectly in the Old Testament and in the New, what did he do with it? Look at verse 7. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Okay, so God's words are pure words. He's given the words. And now it says that thou shalt keep them. To keep something means to guard it or to protect it. It's the place we get the word a keep from, a keep, as in a noun. A keep is a fortified castle. Okay? God had entrusted or has entrusted the keeping of his word, the protection of his word, to who? To himself. That's his job, to preserve and to protect his own word. When was this generation? Well, this generation was the, the generation that wrote the words, that God gave the words to. And when does it finish? He shall preserve them from this generation forever. That's for every other generation after. All generations. God promises to not only deliver a perfect word, he promises to actually preserve and keep that word available to every generation from that generation on with no end. In fact, God always draws a strong contrast to the temporary nature of things in this world compared to his will, his, his own word. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 with me. Isaiah 40, verse 8. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 simply says the grass withereth the flower fadeth but the word of our God shall stand forever now that's a pretty basic comparison isn't it I mean when you go outside I've got I've got roses in my backyard how long do they last roses before they start to sorry a week will, will a rose last for about a week even on the plant right how long will it last on the plant before it starts to Two weeks? Let's give it. Let's give it three weeks. Let's give it a whole month. Okay, your your roses might be better than mine. They probably are. Um, and how long does grass take before it goes from green to brown? <laughs> doesn't take very long at all. It takes one blast of hot air, and it it doesn't have a deep root, so it quickly dries up. And you see, you might drive down the Hume as we did. We drove the the Hume uh, freeway or highway up to Sydney. And we're surprised at how much green there was up there, you know, talking about all the fires and that. We didn't see many uh, results of fires, um, but uh, the nature tends to green up very quickly. But then as soon as you get like a, a blast of hot air or a few days of hot weather, it goes brown again. Um, so the, the picture here is, you know, these things change. They die very quickly. The world, the things in the world are here and gone in a very short amount of time, but God's word stands forever, okay? 
Fair enough, but things don't last too long. That's not a very good thing to, com- to compare it to, but God's drawing a contrast here, that the world is temporary compared to his word. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 35, if you want to turn there with me, he says something even stronger than that. You can't get your head around withering grass and, uh, and flowering, uh, fading flowers. Look at what Jesus says about his word. Not the, not the Old Testament, but his own words. It says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Now that's a serious definition. Heaven and earth will disappear before my words disappear. So if God was preserving his word in the Old Testament, what's Jesus saying about his words? My words exemplifies the fact that Jesus Christ was calling himself God. Because no one can lay claim to an enduring and everlasting word. And when he was saying those words to the Jews around him, and he says, my word's going to last forever. Even more enduring than heaven and earth itself. Then who's, who are you saying you are that your words are so important? Well, he's saying he's God. Jesus doesn't say that, he, that these words were given to him by God. No, he says they are, they are his words. So if anyone ever tells you that in reading the Bible, they find that Jesus is not God in the flesh, they're not reading their Bible. They're just reading what other people are telling them. Okay, Because there are so many, on so many levels, Jesus was declaring himself God and God and God over and over again. The Bible demonstrates the power and grace of the most holy God who created all things. He has chosen, he's written these words, and he's provided them, and he's chosen to preserve his truths, his judgments, his commands, his testimony of his glory and holiness in the words of the scriptures. Next time we're going to look at how he preserves the words on a more detailed level. But let's have a look at how God gave us the word. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1. Hebrews 1 1 says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, Spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Okay, so just let's just, let's just park ourselves here just for one second. The important point with this one over here is that God gave His words to the prophets to speak to the fathers. Now, when they speak to the speaking of the fathers, they're speaking of all the Old Testament <coughs> leadership and and people who have importance. So they were given that truth or those truths through the prophets. God gave His word to the prophets. And the prophets either wrote down those, those words or declared those words and people either memorised those words or directly wrote them down. God, they gave them directly to them. That's how the Old Testament came together. God gave his word to the prophets and then they were delivered to the people. Which prophet wrote the first five books of the Bible? Moses. 
He was the first prophet to write the first five books of the Bible. He wasn't the first prophet overall. Sorry, yes, I'm going to be careful with that one. He wasn't the first prophet, but he was the first five bo- the author of the first five books of the Bible. And you might say, well, where did he get all that information? Well, exactly what God says. He gave that information directly to Moses. Now, was that information completely alien to them and new before God gave it to Moses? No. They probably knew 90% of, of what he had given to Moses, but God gave the exact words to Moses. And you might say, well, when did he write them down? Well, you know what? When you're 40 days up on a mountain with God, that's a lawfully long time to be spending doing what? been getting a lot of information up there for 40 days and 40 nights. Look at verse 2 now. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. So that's the way God gave us the Old Testament. Look at, the, look at verse 2. Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. So in the last days, God gave his message through his Son. The ultimate message. The conclusion of the message. And that message has been recorded for us in the New Testament. It's the gospel. Okay? It's the conclusion. It's God's ultimate um, uh, fulfillment of all the promises that he made in the Old Testament. And God gave us that through his son. Is Jesus a prophet? Yes. Jesus is a prophet. Was God still giving his word to the prophet? To deliver to the people? Yes. Jesus is a prophet. But the difference here is that it was his word that he was delivering. Both God, both God the Father himself and the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to part, look, look at what it says here. It says, in these last days. Right? What does last day signify? Last days. Not first days. Not, not the middle of the road days. These are the last ones, Right? So what's significant about that is that this son who he talks about, whom he delivered this message to the entire world to, that Jesus is the word of God, the one that spoke all of, through whom God spoke all of creation into existence, is delivering this message in the last days. There are no other words to come after this last day's message. You see, Jesus is the final prophet that God has sent. The final one. The last day signifies that there are no more prophets to come after. Do you understand? After Jesus. After this particular message. The last day signifies that this is the last message. So, sorry to the Mormons. There is no other book. The Book of Mormon does not count as a revelation from God. Sorry to the Mormon, sorry to the uh, the Muslims, but a book that was written six hundred years after this, and for someone claiming himself to be a prophet sent from God, doesn't match the words of Jesus Christ Himself. There are no more other messages to come after this one. The gospel is the final message, and that message revolves completely around His Son. The main point here is that God gave us the words both in the Old Testament and the New Testament perfectly. 
In the Old Testament, he gave it through his prophets. In the New Testament, he gave it through his son. And the whole message revolves around his son, both new and old. And it was perfectly written down. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 with me. It was perfectly written down. Now, I want to clarify something and make something very, very clear. That the words that were written down were pure, were perfect. The words themselves, not the idea, not the thoughts, not the, the concepts or the principles. God delivered the exact words that he wanted men to read. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, because some people will begin to tell you, will start to tell you that the word of God, it doesn't matter the words. As long as they say more, around the, more or less the same thing, right? That's why we've got so many different uh, translations and interpretations today. But look at, ask yourself this question. Are words important to God? Yes. You're saying yes. Now let's, let's confirm that, okay? Because there are plenty of people in this world who say the exact words don't matter. There are plenty of churches out there who aren't going to preach this message because they want to be able to read from any Bible, which means the words aren't important. Okay? So let's look at 2 Peter 1.20. It says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came, came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So you get that? They spake... What, what, what do you use when you speak? Words. They spake as the Holy Spirit moved them. He didn't plant a thought in their head and then they came up with the words. Does that make sense to you? He didn't do that. God doesn't plant a concept in someone's mind because there are plenty of churches out there that will teach you that the words aren't important. But plenty of words will teach you that it's not the words that make the difference. It's the, what it means behind it. Now, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a shifty ploy, okay? Because the words are important, and we'll look at that in a minute. No, Scripture guarantees that God guarantees what was written because of someone's, was not because of someone's personal interpretation or opinion. You see, if God plants a thought or an idea in my mind, I might take that because of my interpretation in any direction. If God says to me, Love your brothers and sisters. You know, some, some idea, but without the words attached to it. I might take that in any direction and write words that what I think that might mean. Go to, go to every poet and talk about love, right? And ask them, write about the concept of love. Is any going to write exactly the same? Everyone's going to write something completely different, okay? It might be, the, the idea might be there, but the words are going to be very, very different every Time. But the Bible says, and prophecy, which is the word spoken to prophets, was perfect because the Holy Spirit moved them to speak those words. Not to they're about words, but perfect words. Otherwise, God could not say that the, that the word is perfect and that his words are pure. God did not move the prophets for ideas or concepts, otherwise he would have said so. Instead, he spoke the words exactly to them. This guarantees the perfection of the delivered word for our benefit. Otherwise, we couldn't trust them and would always be in doubt of what they actually mean. But because each word is pure and right, we can trust them. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, just to, just to build on this particular point. The words are important when we read them in the word of God. 
Otherwise, God's own words aren't true. God himself comes out to be a liar here. Look what it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. God inspired people to write those words. That inspire is not, we get, that gets lost in translation uh, today because the word inspired is not the inspire like when I get inspired to do something. I get inspired to, sh- to, to trim my beard. <laughs> what, you don't think I get inspired? Just all of a sudden I, I get an urge to have to trim my beard when it looks too bushy or when someone complains to me. <laughs> we, uh, we visited um, some friends in Sydney and we arrived at the front door. We hadn't seen, I hadn't seen Anne, her name was, and I think we prayed, we prayed for Anne. Anyway, we, we arrived at the front door. There's myself, there's Miria, there's Alicia. We arrived and she's got the screen door closed. And we, we, we ring the doorbell or we knock on the door. And then we hear from the inside, hey, hello, hello. And then she, as she was coming to the door, she opens the door. She looks at me and she goes, oh, you've got a beard. <laughs> that was the first thing she said to me after I don't know how many years, right? She looks at me like she's, oh, you've got a beard. Like, a, oh, and she's, look, like, she's looking at me like a, some sort of a, a carnival attraction, right? And then she looks at Mary and she goes, oh, you're beautiful here. And she goes to hug her. Well. Inspiration. That's not inspiration. I didn't get inspired to trim my beard after that. But when God speaks about inspiration, the inspiration spoken of in the Bible is where God gives his words for people to write precisely as he wants them written down, not whereabouts, because you can get things wrong if you get the whereabouts and, the, uh, and all that sort of stuff. But he's given it for a purpose. He's given it perfectly because it needs to be profitable to us. The reason God's given us his words is that it's got a purpose to it. And the purpose for us is it teaches us about doctrine. It teaches us about uh, how to, if we make mistakes, where we've made mistakes and what we've done wrong and how we have to be told off. It teaches us how to do, get right back again with God. And it teaches us how to become righteous as a person. Okay? God's word is useful, uh, is useful for all of these things because it was delivered perfectly in the first place. It is true in the Old and New Testaments. And they knew this fact before Jesus arrived on the scene. Look at Deuteronomy 29 verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. Almost there? Okay. Now this verse says, The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the ideas of the law. Is that what you've got in your Bible? 
No, all the thoughts of the law, all the principles of the law, all the words of the law. Okay, so there are obviously, and this is this is a nice nice uh, distinction point here. There are obviously things that God has chosen not to reveal, because it says the secret things belong to the Lord. There are plenty of things God hasn't told us about. He hasn't revealed all the all the the, the things to us. But what He has revealed, He's revealed them to us in His Word. Okay. And therefore, us. The reason he's revealed them to us is because they're beneficial to us and they're for us to do, use and for us to get benefit from. And he preserves that for us for all of our generations. That's his job. He's delivered it to us. He's shown us what he wants us to know. And his job is to preserve that for all time for our benefit. Now, it's not that we may do certain Things or follow certain principles. No, it's so that we may do all the words of the law. All the words of the law. All of them. Not some of them. Because some maybe were lost along the way through the writer's interpretation as he was writing it down. Or because someone uh, thought maybe it's a, it wasn't exactly what God was intending so I'll write something a little bit differently. Now, all the words, which means... We've been given all the words from the very beginning. Imagine, for instance, that we looked at the Ten Commandments. Imagine you got the Ten Commandments, right? That's a pretty simple set of rules, but we weren't sure if they were the exact words that God wanted. Imagine if they weren't the exact words. What if it said, what if thou shalt steal was not... was something different what if the, there was a missing word maybe the word maybe always was missing there thou shalt not always steal now what does that mean that means I could steal sometimes right but just don't do it every time I'd be fulfilling the law if always was in there or maybe that, uh, that, that famous uh, King James Bible printing that they had where the, where the printing press it was called the Adulterer's Bible, I think it was. And um, they, were print, they printed up a number of these Bibles until they realised that thou shalt not commit adultery was missing the word not. But is it up to interpretation? Imagine if those words weren't precise. If the words weren't precise, then you've, you're left interpreting a law. You can be left a, fa- a fair way of, of, of things saying, oh, maybe he didn't exactly mean this. Maybe the idea is this. If God gave us ideas. A law isn't a law. So you can't, you can't break. If, if the words aren't exact in a law, then it's only guidance. It's not a perfect law. You can't be brought to a court because it, the guidance is be nice. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can't have a law that says be nice because that's way open to interpretation. The law needs to be perfect in its words because otherwise you cannot then show whether you've actually broken it or not. This is why the words are so important, the word of God. This is why the interpretation we have in our hand, the, the translation we have in our hand is so inter- important. You won't get this message of the churches. You won't. 
because they're there reading messages and NIVs and all this sort of stuff. You know what? Not only are the words different, but there's whole verses and passages missing from those Bibles. And they won't say to you, oh, it's important you know, that, you, that you need to... No, they won't talk about the importance of God's words because they're throwing out the importance of God's words a long time ago. And they're working just with guidance and principles, which means they can then mould those principles and guidance to what suits them. Makes it a lot easier. No law can be followed, though, if we can't trust the precise words in it. Every policeman would have an absolute nightmare if the laws written down weren't trustworthy and written down with precise wording. There'd be an absolute nightmare. There'd be no, you couldn't put anyone away who broke laws. Why has God given us these, these perfect words and these perfect laws? To bless us. Look at Psalm 100 verse 5. I'll wrap us up now. Psalm 100 verse 5. Why has God given us perfect words? Why did he go to such lengths to give us perfect words? Psalm 100 verse 5 says, For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations. That's his promise to us. The reason that God has given us such a perfect and trustworthy and dependable word, the reason he puts his own stamp of approval and says, it's my job to make sure this lasts forever for you. I've given it to you perfectly. I'm going to make sure it lasts forever and it's available to you and will never leave the face of this earth. The reason God has given us such perfect words through the Old Testament prophets and through his son, Jesus Christ, is because he is good. He's good. His nature is good. His desire is to do good toward us. While many people think that that God doesn't, the God we serve and the God we believe in doesn't have truth and isn't good, they think he's anything other than good. We know and have found him to be good. They don't believe he's good. They don't believe he's true. For if they truly believe that God is good, then they would seek to do good. And they would seek more of him. They would trust him in his word. And one of the reasons that we know that God is good is because he has gone to such great lengths to give us a pure word. The devil will will try and sow doubt. And the devil does a fantastic job of sowing doubt in people's minds as to one, whether God is good, and two, whether his word is dependable. And he did that. And thanks, Brother David, for talking about the... um, the, the fall uh, last week. Mm-hmm. But the, the, one of the first things the devil tried to do was to sow doubt. Mm-hmm. To say, now God isn't really good. He's not really. No, he doesn't, he doesn't really want the best for you. Because he, if he wanted the best for you, he'd let you have this fruit. He'd actually say to you, go ahead and have it. Because he knows the day you have this fruit is you're going to become like God's. He doesn't want you to be like him. And the first thing he did was sow doubt in the word. Did God really say that? And then you see Eve fall into a, into a hole straight away. Oh, God didn't want us to, to eat the fruit nor touch it. 
so she first one just to add she just adds to it just to make it a bit more and i can imagine because uh, uh, david brought up the the point that god had delivered that that thing to adam and then it was adam's job really to to tell that to eve and make sure it was clear so you can imagine them walking around the garden and as they're walking around and uh they look at the particular plant and they go oh, that's a beautiful plant eve goes what's that plant there and he goes well that's a tree of life that tree means we never die and then she goes oh as they're walking along a bit longer what's that plant there Oh, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. Oh, what's that about? Oh, no, you can't, we can't eat that one. We can't, don't eat it because God says that we're going to die if we eat that one. Actually, don't go anywhere near it. Don't even touch the thing. And then she probably took that as a, the law that came from God's mouth. Do you understand? But God is good. The devil may, may be sowing seeds of doubt into people's minds, but God is good. God, Everything God does is pure, he, because he himself is pure. And he gives us his word purely. God has always been good. He's shown himself to be good. And the history that we have recorded in the word of God, we need to depend on, because if it's not dependable, then what will we depend on? He loves the world so much that the Bible says that he gave us his only begotten son. I mean, that's a lot of love there. That's goodness. God knew that in order for us to, to, to grow and be saved, he also knew that in order for us to, to know this truth for ourselves today, he had to deliver the pure words in the first place. Because if he didn't deliver pure words and, and guarantee those words were pure, then you and I wouldn't have any confidence this morning to be able to sit down and read the words and for me to preach them to you. I could not be a blessing to you this morning if I didn't believe the words in this book. God has tru truly shown himself to be good and he's truly shown himself to be merciful. For he, if, if he was not merciful, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today because God could have wiped us off the face of the earth a long, long time ago because of our sin and because of our, um, our greed and because we have turned our backs on him a long, long time ago, because of even the weaknesses that we have now, yet God is merciful. God is good. And that mercy and that goodness is recorded in the pages of his word so that we can be encouraged when we fall, when we have struggles in our lives, and we read those things and we say, yes, look how, God, how merciful God was. He can be merciful to me too. God is merciful. He does not change. We can rely on his enduring mercy as we can rely on his enduring word for all generations. Turn to Isaiah chapter 59 with me, verse 21. Isaiah 59 verse 21 says and once again we're reinforcing this idea that God has given specific words and that words matter. Okay, Isaiah 59 verse 21 says as for me 
This is my covenant with them, saith the Lord. My spirit that is upon thee and my words which I have put in thy mouth shall not depart out of thy mouth, nor out of the mouth of thy seed, nor out of the mouth of thy seed's seed, saith the Lord, from henceforth and forever. That's his covenant with people who love him. I've given you my exact words. Keep them in your mouth. And make sure they're in your children's mouths. Make sure they're reading them. Make sure they're reciting them. Make sure they're learning them, memorising them and sharing them. And then your children's children and their children's children and their children's children forever. God has put his own words in the mouth of his writers so that they can be passed down from generation to generation. And we have them here in our hands this morning. Um, ever come to an important milestone in someone's life, maybe a really important birthday or a really important time in their life where you wanted to buy a gift for them, right? And you rack your brain because you want to buy the perfect gift. Who's done that? And I'd assume that 90% of the women have done it and probably about 5% of the men. Because women are very, very good at focusing in on those things and men get distracted very quickly. Um, But if you've ever been in a position where someone has gone to great lengths to actually buy a really perfect gift for you, a gift that's going to show how much they love you, how much they've gone out of their way for you, how much they appreciate you, and it's the sort of gift that they want you to actually have forever, for always. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's a sort, what sort of gift I'm, I'm talking about over here. So it's amazing how, uh, with what lengths people go for those things. Well, in his amazing love for us, even in the midst of our hatred and rebellion towards him, when we didn't love him, when we didn't show appreciation to him, he sought and prepared the most amazing gift that he could give us. The most precious thing in all of existence to him. And he chose to give it to us freely so that we might look on his face one day after we get home and after we enjoy the benefit of that freely given perfect gift and say, you're good. Your love endures forever. What more could we have ever asked than the fact that he sent his only and perfect son to rescue us? That perfect gift. Well, in his son, in his son, he packaged it up with eternal life. He could have given us his son and we could have lived with him for a thousand years. That would have been a, a, a pretty good present, right? But you know what he did? He gave us eternal life. He didn't have to. He, he wrapped up his son and he gave us eternity. He gave us eternal love. Now, so many people are desperate for love these days. They're lucky if they get ten minutes of love shown to them sometimes in their whole lives. People die without seeing love sometimes. If God says, you know what I'm going to give you? You know what that eternal life I'm going to give you? I'm going to show you eternal love. I'm going to grant you an eternal relationship with me. I might even grant you the gift of seeing your loved ones again. The ones you lost. The ones you miss now. You know what? 
they're going to be with me, waiting for you there. I'm going to give you, as part of this package, I'm going to give you heaven itself. Eh? I'm going to grant you a permanent residence in that place. So you get to live there. You have ownership there. You own it. And you become one of its citizens. I'm going to turn you from a, an earthly mortal being with very short future, with no more prospects after that. I'm going to turn you into a heavenly being with an eternal future. In his perfect plan and love, he also chose not only to cleanse us from every sin and stain, he then chose to seal us with his Holy Spirit. And he goes, I'm not going to just give you my son who died for you. You know what? I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. And he's going to live inside you. And what was dead, I'm going to make alive again because he's living in there inside your heart. And he's going to live within you forevermore, which means you're going to be permanently connected to me. You're going to be one of my family from now on. You're no longer going to be an enemy. You're no longer going to be an outsider. You're going to be one of my own family. And on top of that, that spirit that I've put inside you, from the moment you put your trust in me, that spirit is going to teach you the words that I've given you. He's going to be the one who leads you into my truth. He's going to be the one who leads you into my paths. Listen to what he's saying to you. Because he's going to lead you into life everlasting. Listen to what he's saying. Watch where he's going. Learn from him. Because he's going to teach you the perfect words that I've given through him already. Turn finally to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Because God sent us his only begotten son as the perfect gift, but in that gift, he gave us all this other stuff. And I, I, I am loath to call it stuff because I can't call the Holy Spirit that. I can't call heaven that. I can't call eternal life that. All these things are extraordinary. But I want to focus our attention on this precious word that we have in our hands now and that God has given it to us perfectly. And in 2 Corinthians 2.12, it says, Now we have received... 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. And this is the gift that we have received. Freely given. says, now we have received. Now. Not in the future. We have received now. Not the spirit of the world. But the spirit which is of God. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. That he teaches us and shows us how much God has actually given us. In verse 13, which things also we speak. Not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. God has saved us, sealed us with his Holy Spirit. He has provided us a perfect word which he has sealed and preserved through his Holy Spirit and now he's planted his Holy Spirit in our lives so that he can teach us that perfect word and we might come to know every precious promise and perfect gift that he's given us that we might understand it from now 
Why? So that we can actually rejoice in what we have now before we get to that point. Do you understand? Before we see God face to face, before we walk the streets of gold, before we see Christ in his glory, before we see the angels and we catch up with with people that we love that have gone before us, before we're redeemed and given new bodies, before we can rejoice now, rejoicing in the promises that God has given us. And who teaches us those truths? It's the Holy Spirit which compares spiritual with spiritual. What's he comparing? What's he, what's he teaching us here? What's, what's he showing us? What's he teaching us? Not as man's wisdom teacheth, but the Holy Ghost teacheth. What's he teaching you? He's teaching you and me the Word of God. He's teaching us what it means. He's teaching us what we have. And today, if we believe in the Word of God, then we are more blessed than we can ever imagine. Verse 13, it says, Which also we speak. Speak that truth. Speak it. Speak and trust in the perfect promises of God. And let's continue to be taught, not just in church on a Sunday morning. Let's continue to be taught of God every day of our lives. Let's rely on the word that he's given us, that precious and pure word that the Holy Spirit teaches us and shows us how important and what we have in Christ. Let's put him first in all things. Let's appreciate what we have in Jesus.